Welcome to episode 21 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Having a panic attack, people who haven't had one think, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know, you'd be right. But they don't get it. But like people really think they're going to die. Like they think that they're going to have a heart attack or they pass out. It's not trivial. I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Associate Professor Grant Blaschke about depression and anxiety. Professor Blaschke has been a practicing GP for 25 years and is the lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue, which, to our overseas listeners, is one of the largest mental health support organisations in Australia. It's actually chaired by Julia Gillard at the moment, who is a former Prime Minister for Australia. Professor Grant is an Associate Professor at the Nossel Institute and the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. He's an Honorary Professor at the Luohu Hospital Group in Shenzhen, China, and is a Fellow of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. Professor Grant's research has three themes, general practice and primary care, sustainability, and mental health. He has co-authored over 125 publications in peer-reviewed journals. He's authored six books and more than 20 government policy and reports. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory based in Australia, launching in April this year. TalkLink lists mental health practitioners like psychologists, counsellors and psychotherapists. Users can search for mental health practitioners for free, applying filters for things that are important to them, like a particular focus area or experience in a specific treatment type. Users can even see a short video of the therapist to decide whether this is someone that they may like to connect with. If you're a mental health professional and you'd like to get your name out there or grow your business, you can sign up at talklink.com.au forward slash get hyphen listed. Or you can send an email to hey at talklink.com.au if you'd like to know more. Okay, let's dive in. Well, I'm Beyond Blue's lead clinical advisor, which is a real privilege. It's a great role. Um, Organisation does fantastic work in the community, helping people with depression, anxiety, suicide prevention. One of the things is it's got a very strong uh, lived experience focus. So we have about 8,000 people who are members of our, our group called Blue Voices, now, these are people who have actually been through mental health issues themselves or are going through issues. And so they sort of look at everything we're doing and go, well, hang on, ah, no, that's a bit patronising to say it that way. No, don't, you know, this isn't really the issues that we deal with. So that, again, it's a bit of a, a good check on us um, to make sure. We have, you know, wonderful partnerships with various organisations and some pretty strong sub-themes um, we've got a group within the organisation called Heads Up, which is really about the workplace, and another big section um, called BU, which is in over 10,000 schools helping the teachers, remembering that, you know, young people particularly, you know, if, we, if they can get help and get on the right track early, that's yeah. a really great, great investment. Yeah. And you operate a, a crisis line as well, is that right? Yeah, so the Beyond Blue support service is a 24-hour phone line or people can contact it on web chat. And pretty intense, you know, there's 
I think I was looking at the latest figures for the last financial year. It's about more than 270,000 people are contacting our support service. And it's quite gratifying when, you know, I speak to some of my patients. I was speaking to a lady the other day and she's like, oh, it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm just fed up. And she was sort of on her own during the whole COVID lockdown. And she said, I called them up and I had such a good chat to them. And they just calm me down and, and help me make a bit of a plan about what I should do next. So, you know, I think there's, when you hear those sort of stories, you think that's an incredible support for the community. Is it always talking someone off a ledge or is it sometimes a little bit more subtle? Definitely there's a wide variety of people that call, right? So I guess the first thing to say is that, you know, you don't have to, um, have a plan about, about what you're going to talk about. You know, you might just be feeling stressed, not even sure that you've got depression or anxiety, and you're just trying to get a little bit of feedback on, on how you're going. Um, they're mental health professionals. So they've all got, you know, tertiary qualifications and various guidelines we have for how much, you know, mental health experience they've got, and then they have to be trained. So they're pretty amazing people. I think also for the general public, uh, you know, when you're going through a mental health issue, there's all those mixed feelings like, oh, maybe I should just get over it or is this serious enough for me to ring or what will people say? There's still a lot of stigma in the community. Um, so, you know, it can take a little bit of courage sometimes to say, you know, I just pick up the phone, have a chat to someone objective, it's confidential and just get a bit of feedback. Another sort of interesting entry point for people is that we've got these things called the forums. Forums are incredible. They're like online chat groups. They're moderated. So we have a whole room full of people checking that, you know, there's no bullying or trolling or horrible stuff going on. And there's some lovely people on these forums called community champions. And there's a whole lot of threads. So you might go into thread, you know, feeling depressed since I had my baby or don't know what yeah. to do with my difficult partner. You can pick a thread. And um, we have more than a million people a year on that as well. So a lot of people, uh, particularly younger people, I know there are a lot of young listeners as well to your show, that, um, you know, they're, they're, some people are just more comfortable to be using text-based. You know, that, that just seems less confronting to them. So that's another pretty good option if you just want to bounce your ideas and, and share what's going on for you with some other people who are going through similar things. That's a really good option as well. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like an amazing tool. And I guess when we talk about mental health, there's really two sides to it. One side is um, the person who's suffering from it. And the other side is everyone around them affected by it. So do you get many calls coming through where it's not the person who's suffering from depression or anxiety, but the concern for someone else and they just want to get advice? Or is it mainly people who are going through it themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. I tend to find as a GP, I get that, you know, contact from family members who go, oh, you're really worried about my husband. Um, I'm, he's coming in to see you next week. I, but I just wanted to fill you in on what's going on with him. You know, he's not working, mm. he's been up all night, he's drinking, he's on the internet half the night. You know, they, they might just sort of fill me in on the background. Um, Beyond Blue does have a lot of information, including a whole guide on how to help someone who's going through depression, anxiety, because family and friends and that support 
are just such a big part of the recovery process. Um, and so people are always um, really keen to find out how should I approach them? Uh, how can I best help them? And it depends on the situation, but that's a very common concern. Probably less so of an issue on the phone line, the Beyond Blue phone line. That tends to be more people themselves who are going through the issue calling up. But certainly as a clinician, we see that question come up quite a lot. If you are concerned for someone, is there any reason why you should not call the Beyond Blue helpline? I think if you're concerned about someone, a couple of things you can do. So first of all, um, pick a good time to approach that person. So maybe not in the thick of things or when other people are around. And the next thing to do would uh, just uh, sit back a little bit and go, look, I've noticed that, like make a few observations. You know, I've noticed that you don't seem to be sleeping well or I've noticed that you seem to have a really short fuse lately. Is everything going all right? Um, and even if people don't respond to you at that time, you've sort of opened the door. So, you know, in Aussie culture, particularly a lot of men will go, oh, no, I'm fine, fine, just busy, busy at work, you know, but, yeah, or they might want to talk about it. She's right, mate. You know, whatever. That's a bit of a stereotype. But, but there is that sort of idea. But then you've opened the door. So they might come and chat to you later. I think with guys in particular, sometimes rather than in your face, face to face, doing something while you have a chat, like maybe go for a drive, what we call the do a lap. So you're not sort of eye contact, you know, you sort of just going, yeah, things going, mate. You're sort of sitting next to each other, you know. So there's that. Um, I think we do know that the reason I am focusing a bit on the fellas is that we do know that men have more stigma and less likely to go and get professional help. So that comes up very often. It's come up in my clinical work in the last couple of weeks. It's not a rare thing. Um, so, you know, I think we do encourage family or friends to, to ask someone if they're worried about them. It's a balance. And, and I think if they are happy to chat to you, try not to jump in with the instant solution. So they go, oh, yeah, I know what to do. Or, oh, yes, yeah, so I, when I had this situation. So trying to sit back and listen a bit, which is hard for all of us. But the other thing to remember is when you're in that role, you don't have to be a psychologist. You know, you don't have to diagnose anything. You know, you're just trying to get them talking. And then if you are worried about them, like you think this person's having a really hard time, well, you know, God forbid they've been having suicidal thoughts or something really serious. You might be the person that can actually encourage them to link in with services. And they might call Beyond Blue or if they're having suicidal thoughts, something like Lifeline is a good, they're a good group for that sort of situation. Or maybe like we talk, get them to go along to talk to the GP because the GPs are a pretty good option. So family and friends have a huge role um and and i think an important role it might be later down the track where someone's actually recovering and um uh you know they might be having good and bad days it tends not to be linear and you can sort of go oh okay why don't, why don't we go for a walk today i think i'd also say we know a lot of people with mental health issues are pretty isolated because withdrawal is a common symptom um, and I think particularly with the pandemic that we've just been having here in 2020, a lot of people very isolated. So if you've got a friend or even a colleague 
you might schedule in to catch up with them regularly. Don't leave it to chance. Say, hey, why don't we have our phone call on Tuesday nights or, you know, now that things are freeing up a bit, why not pop in and we go for a walk that night or we meet with a couple of friends. So, you know, great role for friends and family to reduce that social isolation to help people with recovery. So what sorts of things would you would you prick up on and go, maybe this is a de- depressive state and my friend or my, my family member? What sort of things are you listening for? What sort of cues are you looking at to think maybe this is a bit more serious? Yeah. So a couple of things I'd say there. You know, life is bumpy and all of us have stressful times and good days and bad days. And, and that's not a mental health condition, right? That's just being human. So there's that. But the sorts of things as a clinician or even just as a friend or family that would make me a bit concerned, um, withdrawal from their usual life activities that they like doing. So that might be friends, family, not going to work if they were working. Um, Using a lot of alcohol is pretty common. Um, Not sleeping, big sleep disruption, staying up all night. But an important feature I would say as well, and just by a rule of thumb, that usually things need to be going for a while. You know, having a couple of bad nights or a bad weekend doesn't really mean much. It's not much fun, but it's not really, it doesn't suggest a mental health issue. But if it's been going for more than two weeks, four weeks, you know, this is a pattern, that is another thing. So the severity of symptoms, the duration, and then, of course, if people are expressing issues about self-harm or suicide, that's an immediate red flag. We take that seriously. You say that we need to speak to the GP. We need to ring Lifeline or Beyond Blue. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is it's a bit of a heavy topic, but the truth is in Australia, you know, it's more than 3,000 people every year choose to take their own life. So it's on average eight a day, it's six on average of those are men. And you know, it's the commonest cause of death between for men between 25 and 44. So, you know, it's it's a serious issue. And if people are getting into that mindset, we've got great treatments and great ways to support people through tough times. And, and we'd much prefer to know that people are having a hard time and they get the right supports in place. Um, so that, that's a heavy conversation but a necessary one. Yeah, and, and there's lots we can do. A lot of the clinicians we've spoken to have referred to invasive thoughts when you're in that really dark place and how you can be a normal, you know, fairly happy person or fairly stable person. And then you go through one of these troughs in your life and when you start finding these invasive thoughts about self-harm or suicide, just, just creep in that that's, you know, that's a pretty big flag that something's out of balance and, and that's a signal. It is. Um, Beyond Blue has been doing quite a lot of work in this area. Um, So we actually came up with an app called uh, Beyond Now, which is free to download and is on the App Store or Google Play, more than 80,000 downloads. And this is for suicide prevention planning. So we're not suggesting that, you know, if someone's acutely suicidal, they need to call Lifeline or go to the GP. But For a lot of people who are sort of grappling with what you described, invasive or sometimes we call it intrusive sort of thoughts, 
um, it's a really good way to sort of systemize your plan about how to deal with that sort of thinking. So there's sections in there about, um, you know, my triggers, uh, how to make my environment safe, who I'm going to call, what are my reasons to live? And you can upload nice photos and videos and things. And some of my patients tell me, and there are people that they have this sort of really, you know, wave of, of really dark thoughts, but they can dig out the app. It's on their phone and they can, you know, rewatch that video of their something that really makes them feel good or why. And they've also got all the emergency contact phone numbers in there. So in the old days, we just used to get people to scribble on a piece of paper and make a suicide prevention plan. But where is that when you need it? Um, whereas this, uh, you know, it's sitting in your phone and we, th we think that's a really good thing. Another thing that Beyond Blue's been doing, which we're very proud of, is called The Way Back Program. So The Way Back Program is what we call postvention. So the sad reality is that people who have attempted to take their own life in those few months after they're discharged from a hospital is quite a high risk time for them. Not surprising, you know, if they're going back to the same life circumstances and they've got all those risk factors. So the way back's a beautiful program where people are allocated a non-medical support person and they can have them on phone or Zoom or face-to-face, -face, however they want. And this person follows up all the practical things in their life. Like, are you, have you gone to your doctor's appointment? Maybe you need Centrelink and we should make sure that you get that money. What are you doing with your accommodation? So all that very, you know, they don't need a doctor to do it. It's not about medical treatment. It's about, you know, sort of life circumstances and support. So that program has been expanded and is, ex is expanding around Australia at the moment and, you know, showing some very promising early results to help people in that very uh, difficult time. And you're right. Often it's those sorts of triggers that you go back to in your old environment that causes a, an experience to play through your mind and, and really takes you back to that place that you'd probably prefer not to be in. So yeah, people know what they and people know what they are. They're like, you know, if I'm drinking, I'm on my own, it's two o'clock in the morning and my kids are off with my partner for that weekend. You know, I know if those planets line up like that, that's not a good time for me. So what am I going to do for that weekend that's better? Maybe I have a girlfriend come and stay or, you know what I mean? Like, so suddenly you can be proactive about it once you start recognizing the patterns. Uh, so we're working really hard on that area. I want to go back to something you talked about previously in the context of suicide. Is it always a case of people who are at risk of suicide are first depressed? Is that usually where it starts and then it goes into suicide? Or can you be in a place where you may not necessarily be depressed, but you or that person that you're concerned about is at risk of suicide? Are they always linked? Yeah, it's a good question. So not always, but we know depression is one of the biggest risk factors for suicide because you get into that sort of negative spiral of thinking and self-loathing and and hopelessness and a sense that you're a burden on people and that's obviously a you know a risk factor but not everyone you know there are other mental health conditions psychoses you know which are associated with suicide some drug and alcohol use and also people in a very acute crisis you know, particularly nasty relationship breakups, um, that sort of context, 
you know, can, some impulsive sort of behavior, that sort of thing. So we take it seriously. You know, we don't have a magic wand uh, for it. I, I think it's also mentioned, worth mentioning, you know, it's pretty tough when you think about these numbers and, you know, when someone takes their own life, that reverberates through their family, their community, and and people think, oh, gosh, should I have done something different? So often those feelings are very common. But we, it, we don't have an exact science for predicting exactly who, when is going to choose to take their own life. You know, even the most experienced psychologist in the world doing everything they should do cannot always pick it. So that's sort of useful for people to know as well if they're in one of those unfortunate situations where someone in a family or friend that that's happened. It may not be that it was predictable at all, you know. So we do what we can and we work hard on that. We look at better ways to do it. And at the same time, we recognise it's we don't, it's not a perfect science at this stage. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that one cuts very close to the bone for me and I'm probably sure, I'm, I'm sure that probably for many of our listeners as well, you know, you, you know someone or you've grown up with someone and they ended up taking their own life and you do often think, you know, have I missed something? Did I miss a cue? Did I, in my case, it was a, a, a housemate. So I was in very close proximity to this person. Like, what, what did I miss? What didn't I hear? What didn't I see? Mm. Um, and that's a pretty dark place to be as well. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, what Beyond Blue hears and sees in terms of trends on a sort of a broader level. What sorts of trends are you seeing in depression in Australia? Are they, is it changing at all with time? And is it changing as the world we live in changes? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, there's a couple of things to say. I mean, in terms of that sort of really hard research data, you know, our big national surveys getting quite old now from 2007, you know, where we looked at depression and any one year, you know, about on average 1 million people experiencing a depression condition, which is why many of your listeners, if not all of your listeners, will know someone in their family or their friendship group. They won't have to think very far um, or themselves to go, oh, I know someone who's had this sort of issue. Anxiety conditions even more common, about 2 million in any one year. So that's the sort of the research side. There's some softer evidence more recently about, you know, what's happened during the pandemic, you know, which is very topical. Um, what a challenge. I mean, who saw it coming? We all thought this week was going to be like last week. And Beyond Blue was very um, uh, privileged to um, get funded to set up a coronavirus wellbeing support service, which was particularly targeted at people who were having issues during the coronavirus. And that was everything from, you know, people who might have been affected by the virus or people in quarantine, people who were doing home isolation. I'm based in Melbourne and we had an incredibly challenging time in Melbourne of a very long lockdown. Um, and, you know, the isolation that I saw with my patients, a lot of young families, a lot of the kids, you know, perfectly happy kids, really struggling after six months of sort of being stuck at home doing Zoom. Um, yeah. You know, so 
it, it, there's a whole lot of fallout from that. Certainly a, a bit of softer evidence that that was significant is we saw a 40 to 60% jump in the contacts to the support service in each month compared to last, the same month in the year before, right? So there was, and particularly when Victoria had the big lockdown, you know, almost three quarters of those calls were coming from there. So if you talk about trends, I think the big trend um, has been COVID and and, the, and and I must say um, it's been an honour to play a bit of a role um, as a spokesperson with Beyond Blue to just try and help talk pe people talk them through this time, but also, you know, maintaining the hope budget and saying, listen, we're going to get through it, just sit tight. Um, but, you know, people losing jobs, losing their... Um, you know, their livelihoods and, and also a lot of pressure cooker households. You know, it's fine if you've got a partner and you go off to your jobs every day. It's a different deal when you're stuck in an apartment together, you know, possibly with an abusive or violent partner. So we saw those figures go through the roof as well. So I think that's been a trend. I think, you know, that's the big trend. That's the headline at the moment. But the other one that I think's brewing really is concern amongst particularly our young people about environmental issues and the state of the world. Um, so Mission Australia does a big survey of young people every year, 25,000 people. Um, I think they're under, I've checked the figures, but I think they're under 25 year olds. And they found the top three concerns that young people were having were, number one was mental health. Number two was environmental issues. So that went from eighth, to second. And, and we've sort of seen that playing out in the community, um, you know, with the big climate school strikes and this sort of thing. So, you know, I think the Generation Zs and some of the millennials have really got their eye in on, you know, what, where are we going? Where are we going? Have our leaders actually got things under control in terms of where the environmental future is? And so that's, I think, a big trend. The third top issue in that Mission Australia survey was quite interesting about social equity. Um, and so particularly the Generation Zs, you know, they're very, as a, as a trend, you know, not all of them, but you're asking about trends, very passionate about equity and inclusiveness and gender inclusiveness and fairness. And, and so that, that they're very much, um, I think, got a, quite a, a, a flavour that generation to the things that they're interested in and that impacts on their mental well-being. The last thing I'd say, which you'd be aware of, is just the tremendous social experiment we're undergoing at the moment with social media. I mean, we have no idea exactly what it, where this is all going to land when you have a developing young mind obsessed with the screen and receiving, you know, copious amounts of feedback on every little picture they put up and every word they put down like it's one thing for older people and there's there are issues of social media addiction and you know how that plays out but I think for um, our young people where where this all lands in terms of their self-image their identity their eating patterns um, their sense of who they are it's all it's all evolving. So that's another big trend. So lucky you asked me about trends, but I actually am quite interested in what's happening in the broader community.
It's so interesting that you mentioned the social media piece because we just had a conversation with Professor Lovman uh, from Turning Point and we had a conversation about social media addiction specifically. And we touched on a lot of these and it's sort of, um, it's sort of timely as well because Netflix have released... Um, social Dilemma. Yes, thank you. <laughs> social <laughs> Dilemma. And it blows your mind. Yeah, I thought that was excellent. Right. Yeah, I, I was I was happy to be following quite a lot of the people that they interviewed in that movie on various podcasts. Right. Since you're you're a podcast doyen now, but I, I love podcasts, and I've been following some of these uh, great academics. Particularly, I like Tristan Harris, yes, who um, is a real leader, and I think has a a website and a movement called Time Well Spent. And is very um, talks a lot about you know persuasive technology and and really how you know in a way our our primate little minds are no match for algorithms and AI which can absolutely pinpoint what you're going to be interested in and how to keep your eyes on the screen a bit longer. So yeah, I think this has mental health implications. Just since, since we're getting into, you know, some sort of fascinating topics, the other area that's developing is AI, artificial intelligence, and, and how that's going to play out in mental health. And there's some really interesting developments there in the diagnostic world. So just to give you an example, there's some incredible research coming out about, um, you know, using AI, you can go through people's social media posts or their Instagram oh. posts and yeah, things like with consent within a, the, the front, well, you know, the frame of a study, there's a couple of studies yeah. published about this, but looking at what filters people are using and how often they're posting and, and you realize that your digital footprint reveals probably a lot more about your mental well-being than you knew. Um, but there's also incredible developments in this area in um, treatments. So there's a couple of good chatbots. Um, there's one called Wobot and another one called Weiser. And they, you, they're based on cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm figuring your sort of audience knows what CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy is, but the basic idea of identifying and challenging patterns of negative thinking is the central part of that. But anyway, these, these chatbots are pretty engaging with some of your young people, they particularly for anyone. But, you know, you get a 15-year-old on a little chatbot who goes, hi, how are you today? Are you having a good day? Yes. Would you like to learn a little bit more about negative thinking? Yes. Here's a video, you know, like quite interactive. So there's all that sort of online psychological stuff coming down the pipeline. And then the prognostic stuff's interesting too, like uh, some incredible studies matching people's scans with their medical history, but also tracking with a little smartwatch their level of activity and, and how much they're moving around and using algorithms to say, oh, is this person getting depressed again? So raises huge privacy issues, doesn't it? And, and so we don't, I don't think as a society we've quite worked out exactly how are we going to manage all that? But yeah, in I don't terms know how of it, I feel about that. Yeah, I know. All the same, uh, same. It's it's a um, it's a technology that's in great need of public discussion and yes. regulation and caution about our data more generally. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you're 
you got me talking about trends, Rowan. So I, I think love there's it. this incredible, exciting time we're in. And, um, you know, there's everything, um, all this sort of fancy online stuff. I might just bring my feet back on the ground and, and mention that it is great that we've got all these sort of fancy online things around. If you wanted a good website that pretty much collates all the different online treatments like Mood Gym and My Compass, the, the central website is called Head to Health. Um, and that's run by the government. And it's a really good just collation of all the different online therapies and, and resources. So that's a good look, you know, if you like doing that sort of stuff. And evidence-based, you know, look at a, a, a website like Mood Gym. It would gain based on sort of CBT, lots of randomized control trials, incredibly effective at reducing anxiety, reducing depression relapses, really helping people to change their way they're thinking about things. I want to go back to the first um, sort of trend you were talking about. Uh, you talked about corona and impacts. Um, do we know what it's done for suicide yet? Have we got any data? Look, it's it's interesting. One of the great concerns, I think, from, from quite a few leading academics around Australia have been, you know, predictions about suicide rates and what will happen with lockdown and the pandemics. My, my understanding of at least the most recent Victorian statistics, and here we are doing this podcast sort of around November 2020, but uh, my understanding is that very happily the rates aren't higher than last year at the moment, and thank God for that. That's great. But we've certainly seen, you know, a lot of the hospital casualties have seen a lot of suicidal behaviour, and as a clinician, a GP, we've, we've really seen very isolated pretty desperate people. So it's it's not known yet where that's going to land. And there are some modelling that, that suggests that, yes, it will, it will be a significant rise in suicide rates. But I was very pleased to see, you know, maybe some of these resources that we've been putting in, because Australia's been a world leader on um, its commitment to mental health right from the get-go on this pandemic, Huge funds put into telehealth, um, making the psychological better access program, the 10 sessions with psychologists has been expanded to 20, putting in place um, mental health services within the community, phone support services like the coronavirus Beyond Blue one. You know, really significant commitment, like not an afterthought. And you know, let's hope that that's helped some people who otherwise might have been at more risk. I, re I really do hope so. And, you know, uh, these supports for people in an incredibly hard year have been so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Professor, I feel like we've spent all this time talking about depression and I'm really keen to come back to anxiety. Um, you know, what what is yeah, anxiety? Yeah. What do you experience? And then what can you do about it? Yeah, look, I'm really pleased you raise it. Um, the first thing to say about anxiety conditions is they're really common. As we said, 2 million in a year in Australia. There's only, what, 22 million of us or whatever it is now. So this is not rare, okay? And the second thing is there's a bit of a myth and stigma in the community that it's trivial. And, and some problem, the part of the problem with that 
is our language. You know, I, oh, I'm a bit anxious that St Kilda's not going to win their match against Richmond on Saturday night. Oh, I'm a bit stressed about this. So, you know, it's used in a very colloquial fashion. But the truth is, and the research tells us that people with unmanaged anxiety conditions can have huge impact on their life. People have been through it will tell you. Having a panic attack, people who haven't had one think, oh, yeah, yeah, no, you'd be right. But they don't get it. But like people really think they're going to die. Like they think that they're going to have a heart attack or that they're going to embarrass themselves or pass out. That's not trivial. Similarly, with the other anxiety conditions, you get social anxiety and you can't go out or the, you know, you're terrified that someone at work is going to ask you to give a presentation or that you, you won't go out to a cafe because you think people are going to look at you. Big impact on your life can affect relationships. You might be trying, might be single, might be trying to meet someone. So again, you know, post-traumatic stress. Interestingly, that's sort of um, got its own category now. I mean, it, it it used to sort of live under the anxiety condition heading, but it's it's certainly an anxiety-related issue. And post-traumatic stress, obviously, not tri trivial with you know recurrence of symptoms and re-experiencing things. Um, and OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Again, somewhat sort of trivialised in some movies or dramatised, but pretty common and very exhausting for people. And, you know, it can be anything from like having to just check, go home and just check that you turn the gas off or just and have to go back again and again. Or it might be something about, oh, did I send that email? I'm not sure. I'll check it again and again. But I think, you know, when you talked earlier about it, invasive or, or what we call intrusive thoughts, very exhausting for people where they can't actually turn the tap off on it. Like it just keeps coming at them. And, and not uncommonly, they get exhausted and sometimes get depressed as well. Now, the good news is that we've got incredibly effective treatments for anxiety conditions. I enjoy treating them probably more than any other condition because it's not... Um, they're not, they get better. Like people really can retrain the way they're thinking about things. And we've got some wonderful treatments. Some of the cognitive behavioral therapy treatments, highly effective, multiple randomized controlled trials. Probably a good time to mention to you that this year, Beyond Blue published a new document called A Guide to What Works for Anxiety Conditions. We commissioned smart people at the University of Melbourne, uh, led by Nikki Reevely and, and other colleagues to review all the studies and they report for a lay audience on what works in terms of psychological treatments, complementary treatments and the medication treatments. And there's nice little um, formats like infographics saying, you know, three thumbs up, works really well question mark not enough studies don't know um, right. and they cover all the traditional but also all the complementary treatments um, so that's a and it breaks it down into those different sorts of anxiety i talked about so i'd like to link that in the show notes because that sounds amazing so you said cognitive behavioral therapy i'm guessing lots of yeah. thumbs up yeah three thumbs up for that one for most of the anxiety conditions out of Pretty three amazing. yeah yeah, okay. really, they okay. would, they, they, they are really, and I see it in my clinic. I'm, some GPs 
learn basic cognitive behavioral therapy skills. And I've been lucky to be working in that area for a while. Very enjoyable to actually help people um, who come to often to a GP with a mix of anxiety, panic attacks and physical symptoms. Like they think they're having a heart attack or they think they're having some a bowel cancer or something going on. So the GP is quite a good place to start because we can do all the tests and go, no, not thyroid, not, not having a heart attack. Now, what's going on? How come you've had to go to casualty three times in the last year? What's going on here? And, and then we can start to look at people's patterns of thinking and, and help to de deconstruct that and find other ways of thinking. Um, so well, was there anything on that list that was a surprise to you that got more thumbs maybe in the unconventionals that you'd expected? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I think what we should mention with all the mental health conditions, you know, particularly anxiety and depression, is don't forget the common sense things. Like, um, and what I mean by that is some of the simple things like exercise, regular exercise, good evidence for that. And when you think about it, you know, you're burning up a lot of adrenaline, very good for stress and anxiety. There's some amazing new research coming out about food, particularly in, in depression. So at Deakin University in Melbourne, the Food and Mood Institute, I think I've got the name right. That's a great um, name. Yeah, so it's, I might have that. <laughs> but anyway, it's something like that. They do incredible work, like finding, you know, the Mediterranean diet, really quite helpful on helping people with mood problems. So, so that's interesting. Um, I think uh, what I always try to remind people as a GP is before we go and get into really, let's get into fancy psychological techniques and that sort of thing, don't forget to try and just get your lifestyle a little bit in order. Um, the other thing I find incredibly common with anxiety is People come in and they're saying, oh, I'm having panic attacks. Okay. How much coffee are you drinking? And they're, you know, they're cranking yeah. their coffee. They'll be having, yeah. you know, I think, oh, and I have six. And, and oh, yeah, I have two things of Diet Coke at night. And you're like, okay, let's have a look at that. Um, so yeah. there's good things to be had there. I think also, particularly, some of the anxiety conditions run in families. So it's always useful as a doctor. To ask people, oh, you know, oh yeah, my sister's had, uh, you know, panic attacks forever and my dad has OCD, you know, like the, we aren't psychological and thoughts, but we're also biological and chemicals and, and sometimes it's pretty biological. What about sleep? I read Matt Walker's book, Why We Sleep, recently and it blew my mind on how it links to mood and health and everything. Yeah, sleep is one of the most common um, complaints that we see as GPs. Um, and it's a fairly integral part of the experience of a lot of the common mental health conditions. You know, when, I, when people are getting out of control with their depression, and in fact, what I often say for them, it's their relapse signature, because don't forget, sometimes these things come back. Like, if you don't sleep two or three nights in a row, I want you to come back and see me, because the wheels are getting wobbly again. So getting people's sleep-wake cycle back in order is really important. Again, really simple non-pharmacological stuff we can do about getting more sunlight during the day, 
not sleeping during the day, getting a comfortable spot at bed. The phones and the social media can come into it. Often um, encourage people to plug in their phone outside their bedroom is useful. Um, uh, maybe even switching it off, put it on airplane mode before you go to bed. Um, so being a bit disciplined about the technology, because even though you're lying there, it's very stimulating, you know. Um, um, so that's a good area. Uh, obviously, you know, with all these things, um, you know, as a GP, you can go, oh, eat well, sleep well, uh, do lots of exercise, but like we're all human. The other thing is very common is substance abuse. So, you know, so many people with depression, anxiety, particularly anxiety, they try and manage their own symptoms by drinking alcohol. If you've got social anxiety, then like the minute you're going to a party or going to a club or out, drink, you start drinking because yeah. you've learned, yeah. oh, that's just going to calm me down. I'm just going to get a little bit smashed and then I'm not going to have to deal with all my worry. Now that can develop into a pretty unhealthy drinking habit as well. So these are the common things. So there's no sort of rocket science to that. Um, and, um, but, you know, there's no magic wand with it. But usually I find with my patients that we go, what can we do with your lifestyle? Then I often get a psychologist involved. And what can we do with the way you're thinking about things? And then if there's a biological component, you know, we make sure that they haven't got a thyroid problem or something else that's actually setting them off. And if need be, use medication. For the more severe depression cases and anxiety cases, some of the medications are great. And um, they need cautions on them. You know, for example, the SSRIs are a very common group of antidepressants that are used for depression and anxiety. But there's a particular you know, a little red flag on those, particularly with young people. This early studies came out suggesting a bit more suicidal thinking can happen on some of those, which is unfortunate because you're trying to manage that. So they need to be closely monitored. It's small, you know, like small numbers compared to the benefits. But, you know, if you're the person where it tips you up or you're the family member, you know, you need to know these are medications can be dangerous but they can also be great and I have patients who go you know they've done all the lifestyle stuff they're exhausted they've seen psychologists they've done CBT worksheets and then they try medication and a couple of months later they go oh what a relief this is fantastic it's just turned down the volume on this whole thing for me so, you know, I'm not um, judgmental about it. I'm a little bit of a pragmatist. I'm like, okay, let's do what works. Um, you know, some people inappropriately get worried about getting addicted to medicines. Generally, you know, the antidepressants aren't addictive, inverted commas, like, say, the sleeping tablets. You know, some people who start taking, you know, Valium or sleeping tablets can get really quite hooked on them. But there is a withdrawal phenomena when people have been let's say someone had an anxiety condition and they go on some ssri medications it's usually for quite a while like it might be six months a year if they've been having it for a long time it might be two years and eventually we're saying all right i think ready to go off this now and we taper it we do it gradually and then um people can get a bit of rebound 
and you know get a bit more anxious again as they go off it or have sort of symptoms so they're not to be taken lightly but they can be with proper supervision you know something to add to the mix that can really help okay that brings us to the end of our chat with professor blaschke Coming up next, we speak with Dr. Linda Kirkman of the Society of Australian Sexologists for a really interesting conversation about sex, relationships, and how it all connects with our mental health. Thanks so much, and see you again soon.